0: Hello, and welcome to my perspective: Stories of Recovery Experiences podcast. I'm your host, Chris Payton, and today my guest is Lisa Scotland. Hello, Lisa. How are you?
1: Hey, Chris. How are you?
0: Yeah, really well. Thanks. Thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks Lisa. Thanks for having me. Yeah. You, you're welcome. <laughs> uh, I believe you've had a, a morning of cleaning at home, doing some <laughs> spring cleaning. Is that right?
1: <laughs> yeah, I have. With um, sort of stain to. You know, step out of a little bit of lockdown at the moment, and I just wanted to make sure the house was ready when we we're ever ready to have people over.
0: Yeah, right. Yeah, so we're both deep in uh, in a Sydney lockdown at the moment. Lisa's probably in her study, and uh, I'm I'm stuck in my bedroom recording this. Yeah. So, yeah, it's uh, it's been a been a long uh, period of time, and we're just uh, we're just really pleased to be able to uh, deliver this episode today. So, Lisa. I just thought we could start by you introducing yourself to our listeners.
1: Yeah, sure, Chris. Well, I'm Lisa and I'm 45 and I live in the western, well, northwestern suburbs of Sydney. I work um, part-time, so four days a week, and all from home at the moment, but I, I do like to do a bit of home and, and office work and I work as medical devices and I work in the professional education role of, you know, coordinating education for surgeons and things like that. So I'm busy. I've got two children, 13 and 11, who are the light of my life and beautiful dog who keeps me active. She might actually be my favourite child. And I'm married uh, to my husband, Michael, and I have a really lovely, happy life here.
0: Yeah, you you, cert, you certainly do. Lisa, I've spent some time with you over the years and you're always the life of the, the party and you're a <laughs> wonderful host and and, and and your um your family's um just uh, your children are, are adorable and uh, yeah I know your your husband Mick well also and yeah just just great people to be around. Lisa, hey, tell us a, a little bit more about yourself as as a child. What was your um, upbringing like?
1: Well, probably quite similar to yours, Chris. I mean, I, I only had one sibling. So my sister and I, we were very close. We was, you know, in the, the 70s and 80s. So a lot of, you know, outdoor play, different bit to what the children today are doing. But, you know, a lot of climbing trees, going for bushwalks, hanging out with friends. Um, we always had, you know, some barbecue or something to go to. So, it was love you know, lovely social healthy kind of upbringing. I did a lot of sports. I loved netball and softball um, and sort of played a bit of this here and there. But I did basically from when I was five to right up to year 12, I did um, ballet. So I was always active doing something and, and um, you know, spending lots of time at ballet but that probably held me in good stead for a, a little bit down the track which we'll chat about later
0: <laughs> yeah sure and you, you're quite clever with your hands as well I know I know you as, as someone who's interested in sewing and uh and you're quite uh, artistic as well is that right
1: Oh, well, I don't know about artistic but I do like I do like to sew my um, my grandmother on my mum's side um was a seamstress and so spending a lot of time watching her growing up um doing you know she she did piecework sewed piecework for for a living and then made lots of beautiful dresses and things like that and so I'd always you know it was always a bit natural for me to to see a sewing machine or have a look at fabric and things like that and so I I desperately wanted a third child and my husband said no you know why don't you just get stuck into your sewing so I thought you know what I will and so I just (laughs) I have a it's I've got two hobbies one of them actually three hobbies one of them is buying fabric the other one is um, buying sewing patterns and then third one is actually sewing it together (laughs) yeah right separate separate but they're um it keeps me busy which is good
0: Excellent. And so, do you do you um, make clothes for yourself, or your children, or both? Or
1: yeah, I've gotten quite selfish over the years. I used to make a lot of you know clothes for my daughter and for other people and other people's children and and my mum. But I've actually, as I've gotten you know more involved in my career and the kids have gotten older and and I'm more busy. I just don't have the time, so I'm very selfish. I Just so for me now. <laughs>
0: <laughs> right. And so, so, so as a mother. Um... What's life like for you as a, as a mum? What do you, what do you get up to? Do you, are you driving kids around uh, to, to to sport and their hobbies and things like that? Or
1: yeah, a bit busy. But um, at the, well, when we're not in lockdown, we're um we're going off to, you know, netball for for Maddie or jiu jitsu for Luca or band for Luca, um or running them around to friends' houses. So um you know you know going on a nice walk somewhere or going off to the beach and we love we love traveling so um you know unfortunately not all of us can't be off (laughs) having a lovely holiday but that is my thing to look forward to um every few years I I try and plan and book um and go on a beautiful big holiday and drag the kids with us and they love it and um so it yeah really because it's a small little nuclear family it's probably easier to do those types of things but love being a mum and um yeah, the kids are just terrific.
0: Yeah, great stuff. So, so your line of work, uh, I understand that you you spent some time um, working sort of with neurosurgeons, and you're in that that medical field. But uh, how did how did you end up getting into this um, this line of work?
1: Uh, Yeah, that's a good question, Chris. So after school, I went and did um, a a Bachelor of Applied Science degree in speech pathology. And um, I don't really know why I picked speech, probably because I'd done well academically and and it had, you know, (laughs) it had a challenging um, entrance mark. So I went and did it. But I I don't know that it was ever my full calling. So I only worked in that for a number of years. Um, And then I sort of got into... Medical, well, pharmaceutical sales and and dental implant sales, and I didn't really enjoy the sales side of things, um, but then. Had an opportunity with Johnson and Johnson years ago to do um, more of a clinical specialist role, where you spend a lot of time in in operating theatres um, as the rep who goes in to help with all the equipment that a, a a spine surgeon might use. So I worked in that for you know nearly nine years, and then um, recent, well not recently, about seven or eight years ago, I had an opportunity to move across to another company, um, Life Healthcare, and. Uh, there I've done a number of different things, so been working in theatre and then uh, moved into product management, mm-hmm. um, which I really liked, and that was um, good because it was more predictable in its hours so I could pick children up from school or from preschool because if you're stuck in an operating theatre, you can't leave and preschools don't stay open all night long. Um, so it it was it sort of suited my lifestyle. And then just recently there was an opportunity to get out of the product management and move more into the professional education manager's role. And um, so I've only been in there for not even six months, but I've really enjoyed, um, you know, learning a whole new side of the business. And it's been, yeah, it's it's interesting, my little path from speech pathology to professional education manager.
0: Yeah, it certainly is. So are you the sort of person that has sort of set yourself goals to get where you are? Have you just, or just um, kind of positioned yourself to, to take opportunities What's, what's been your approach?
1: Um, I think professionally, I'm not as goal setting as I am in my personal life. Like I have more aspirations that are more ambitious personally in my, my personal life than I am necessarily in my um, professional life. But so not really, a, you know, I didn't sit back a number of years ago and say, this is where I want to be. But um, it's more a case of taking an opportunity when it comes and just sort of, you know, ha- taking the leap and. Um, figuring out what suits me best in my my life with the kids and my husband, um, and also what I can if I can get enough out of it um, to keep me happy and um, keep chugging along.
0: Sure, right. And and your husband Mick, he's um he's a, a hands on sort of dad. I've I've seen him yeah. doing his stuff with the, with the kids. So what what's he into work wise?
1: Uh, he works for state government, um, and he has done that. Uh, ever since he left uni. um, And he looks after regional water um, strategies. Um, So he does a lot of, uh, he's always, had a desk job really, whereas mine was more um, in theatre, and now is more much more um, desk orientated. But um, he um, yeah loves hanging out with the kids. Um, he's been studying for the last um, I can't even remember. It feels so long, Chris. Um, just sort of part time study to do um, a grad dip in economics, I think. Right. <laughs> and um, so he's spent a lot of evenings. I always admire how he can sit all day at work and then um, have dinner and then clean up and then sit all night studying so oh, we're nearly done where I say where he's nearly done um at the end of this uh semester he'll be finished um which I think is a good solid chunk of time and um <laughs> hopefully yeah, he decides never to study again <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> that <right>. dreadful. <laughs>
0: you can and he can finally go on that that long holiday as well that's it
1: yeah that's it but he's yeah he he's um, very hands-on share all the help with and work with the kids and um and he's yeah he's a good dad yeah, great.
0: Hey Lisa, um, tell us about yourself as a as a young adult. What what were you into?
1: Um well, socializing, hanging out with my friends. Um, yeah. and desperately, you know, saving I think after after uni, um, actually during uni I sort of got a bit of a a, a travel bug. Um my, I'd grown up with my mum who's um, German and she had always spoken about you know fairy tales and beautiful places overseas and um, and I'd never you know I'd never been but it was always this magical wonderful wonderful place you know with all these gorgeous scene the scenery and these wonderful people so um, it had really instilled a passion for travel and seeing new things and um, And at uni, I got a chance to, I was saving and saving and I got to go to Canada and I'm like, oh, this is just terrific. So, you know, loved the opportunity to go and travel. And then uh, because I'd done an allied health degree, um, I knew that um, with the uh, English government we had the, the exchange you know the working overseas holiday visa thing mm. and um, so I knew I'd just do a bit of work here get a you know one or two years experience here wait for my sister to, to sort of catch up she's she's two years younger so catch up with her to get a bit of income um, a bit of savings and then we packed up and went overseas um, in our early 20s and traipsed around Europe for three months together and um, and then i i stayed there i stayed and worked and she came back home but um, both of us always loved you know socializing hanging out with people and also planning travel mm.
0: so you'd finished you'd finished your speech pathology degree by that time and yep. was were, you're a fully fledged uh, speech pathologist were you working as a speech path
1: overseas yeah. or yeah right yeah so i worked here for 2 years um, mm. and then um, i went overseas did the travel and then um did some started applying for agency work, and so that was great at that point um, because agency work paid really well so you only had to work for a chunk of time mm. save up some English pounds and then you could travel again in the summertime so that was my plan I spent two and a well a bit over two years but um to technically I was only supposed to spend two years there um, working and um, and making plans to travel and traveling
0: right now that was that was around twenty years ago, right?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Now, yes, it was. We're we're here today to talk about um, about your recovery, and that's what this this uh, this podcast is is all about. And uh, twenty years ago, the, um, in the UK, the worst rail disaster occurred, where ten people died and and eighty people were seriously injured. Lisa, you're among the seriously injured. Um, that day mm. and you were taken to hospital as, as a result of that those injuries um, can you tell us about that?
1: Yeah certainly Chris yeah you're right it was um, February um, cold and snowing and it was dark it was a very early um, train ride I was taking I was actually going to go and do a day course um, for speech pathology and I was living in Newcastle um, in England at the time and um, right up in the northeast. And um, yeah, I was unfortunate enough to be involved in, in a train accident where my um, pelvis was split in half. I had an open book fracture um, and it was knocked out and had a bit of a head injury and um, <laughs> and nothing permanent head injury-wise, thankfully. But um, yeah, my if you imagine your pelvis as a rim or a, a, a circle, um, effectively... It split in half. So I had a shearing force, um, from the base of my foot. Um, and I don't remember this cause I was knocked out thankfully. Um, but, uh, then my pelvis, half of my pelvis ended up near my rib cage. Um, and so all of those bones, um, shattered and, um, and broken. And I was very lucky cause there are a lot of, um, nerves and big blood vessels in that area. And, um, Uh, there's a high incidence of open book fracture, you know, people splitting apart their um, big vessels, blood vessels and bleeding to death. So um, it was a pretty significant, pretty physically significant accident. And um, yeah, I just, I ended up having to go to one hospital um, where they had a look, they did initial assessment on on me and realised that their capabilities at this little hospital weren't going to cut it in terms of fixing me up, um, and so then I was put back into an ambulance probably a day later, and then um, uh, driven up to, well, driven down to Leeds, uh, St James's Infirmary there, and so that that's where I spent um, eleven. Days, I think, um, but I'd had a an, an orthopedic, a fabulous orthopedic surgeon um, in my my career afterwards when I learned more about orthopedics. Um, he's one of the best trauma surgeons um, in the region, and so I was very lucky to have him on call and him um, there to fix my pelvis um, and p- put it back together, a bit like Humpty Dumpty. <laughs> right. Yeah.
0: Wow. So so yeah, just. Just such a, um, a horrific uh event and a horrific yeah. uh, i guess injury to to yourself and I guess there was other injuries as well other than the pelvis um, yeah. you you were knocked out and uh, did you, yeah. did you have other other problems I mean you uh, mentioned the ribs and what have you as well
1: yeah well luckily, my ribs and my spine um, so my nerves all were you know they were okay um, i had lacerations, but the, the largest, um, like, you know, and, and bruises and cuts and things like that, but the, the largest injury was this sort of um, pelvis that had been split in half. Um, and so to, to, to fix that, I don't know if you want me to go into what the, the operation, Chris, but they effectively, um, they uh, open up, I had an open reduction so that my pelvis had split open. And so they had to um, put in, On my left, it's called the sacroiliac joint. And so where my spine and my pelvis really meet, that had split in half. So they put in three plates across that side and drilled them in to put me back together. And then the right-hand side of my pelvis had um, dislocated out. And so they put a big screw from the right-hand side um, of my um, buttocks through there um, to to bind that joint back together. So the left and the right side was sort of held back together. But because it was such an unstable fracture, Um, they had to turn me over and then put an external fixator on me, which effectively is um, too, too screws um, on either side so two on the right and two on the left drilled straight into my pelvis so through my skin and straight into my pelvis um, and then held there and then effectively what um, a good friend of ours Jeremy had actually termed a towel rack so a big um, a, a big a steel a steel dowel type of thing or a steel rod that held those two that was attached to both of those pin sites or or fixations and that held my pelvis in place so it's a bit like an external brace to make sure that nothing was moving and then and, the, and that um, was
0: visible on the outside of your oh, body yeah yeah oh, that's gosh. right so yeah so that mm.
1: protruded out and I had that on for, for three months and um, you know needless to say dressing around a, a big towel rack that's attached to your pelvis is really challenging um, and In the hospital I was in for the first um, 11 days, because it's more of an acute hospital, and I I don't know why this happened, but they didn't sort of dress the sites properly, so I ended up being transferred to another hospital, closer to where I was living at the time, so up in Sunderland. Right. And... I arrived there with like these weeping infected pin sites, which were, <laughs> the nurses were horrified with. So, I was, you know, having to treat those as well and lots of medication, like, you know, huge doses of antibiotics to get that infection under control. So, yeah, it was, I don't know, like, you know, you take for granted the things that you can do when that involve your pelvis. Like, you know, I couldn't, Cough or sneeze, or sometimes not even swallow, or you know, someone would bump the bed and I'd just about jump out of my skin. Like, it is incredible how, like, right in the middle of your body, everything you do affects your pelvis. And there were a number of weeks there that I was just, oh, it was just incredible. I can <laughs> oh, I imagine, cope. Yeah. even
0: going to the bathroom would have been, uh, oh, look, very that's difficult. Enough.
1: That's another story. I, yeah, sure. I couldn't do that. I couldn't do that on my own. That involved, uh, you know, three or four nurses to get me. <laughs> the my bit. goodness. Yeah.
0: Lisa, it sounds as though you you were you were doing the rounds in the hospitals. You you uh, spent a period of time in hospital. How, yeah. How long were you in Sunderland for? Uh,
1: I was in Sunderland for f- I think five five or six weeks. Um. So that was actually the hospital that I was awkwardly working in um, at the time. So I was working as a speech pathologist there and I had gone and, you know, op- and seen patients on the ward that I ended up on. And so I knew a lot of the nurses that ending up having to do my my personal care every day. Um, so that got a little bit awkward, but at the same time, it was um, really wonderful because I had this department of speech pathologists and occupational therapists and physios who I knew. Um, and so I had never-ending source of visitors effectively so um, I was yeah it was probably six weeks or six and a half to seven weeks all up including the acute phase down at um, St James mm. and then up at in Sunderland for a bit more of a rehab sort of stint
0: yeah right so let's let's um let's sort of um, talk a bit about your recovery you're yeah you're in hospital were you, were you up and walking every day what oh. what did you, what did <laughs> no. your rehab involve
1: Yeah, so walking didn't happen for a long, long time. Like I couldn't weight bear on my left leg um, for months because um, it was my the bones on that pelvis um, weren't able to hold me. Yes, and so pardon me, I had to. I was non-weight bearing and um, basically just doing little tiny incremental exercises on the bed, using it, you know, with my feet and um, and ankles and then slowly with my knees, and just sort of starting to get lifting my legs up and down. So physically, I, I was either sitting or in bed for about, you know, good two and a half to three months. And only at that point was I starting to, you know, actually scrapped that Chris <laughs> I was non-weight bearing for three months um, but I was starting to walk and I don't remember exactly when that was but I wasn't able to put weight onto that leg um, for a long long time but as a result I like that leg that must the muscle in my leg um, atrophied and Um, because it wasn't being used you know Mm. you use it or you lose it and um, I lost it and it took a long time and even now um, I have problems with that knee because it doesn't track properly because the muscles aren't correct but I wasn't yeah there wasn't I was walking with I had a zimmer frame when I did eventually get up and then I had um, two crutches and eventually one crutch or a stick Um, and then um, I probably was more mobile by about without a stick, but about five months when I was able to maybe go back to work for a bit.
0: Gosh. And so the the doctors and, uh, you know, the physios and your allied health team, were they giving you sort of an indication as to how long it was going to take
1: you to recover? Yeah, the um, the doctors and physio, well, the doctors originally um, had sort of said, oh, you know, you're going to be, this could be, depends on your recovery, you could be not walking for anywhere, you know, seven to seven to 12 months I thought I I can't do that that's a that's a long time okay. <laughs> um and um so you know they they said obviously the old and I always had the advantage of being young um and very fit and um and pretty healthy so I I knew that I could I could definitely beat the seven months but um you know they'd said if you were an older an older person it would have been um, a, a, many more months than that so I did have an advantage but I knew that it would be a bit of a slog. Like I didn't, I realised that this is not just going to, we're not just going to hop up and go back to work next week.
0: So what, so what did you do? You managed to get back to work uh, a bit earlier than you were expecting. And you you mentioned uh, earlier in our conversation that you drew on some, uh, some of your strength from, from ballet. What, Mm, what, what was it that you did?
1: Um, Well, uh, the uh, look, I had these fabulous physios that um, they just, partnered with me I think and I think I had the advantage because I, I they knew me and they knew um that I you know I wasn't just a patient they had seen me as a as a clinician before um and so they really I was you know they could see the determination I really was independent beforehand and I was fiercely wanting that independence back again um and so they acted like partners and um and I suppose I was a bit fairly demanding about how, what kind of goals I wanted to achieve. Um, and was was never really sort of passive in my recovery. I sort of took, took it by the reins a little bit. But um, they they helped, you know, they were just um, providing exercises. I'm like, so let's do a bit more. Can you push me a bit more? And they're, you know, let's, um, in a couple of weeks, we can try this. I'm like, yeah, but I'm ready now. Let's, can we try this in now, like next week rather than two weeks' time? So they just were real partners in terms of getting me back to where I wanted to be
0: why do you think you were like that I mean why were you pushing them
1: it's isn't it normally the other way around Uh I look they I think because like I mentioned I was like fiercely independent I was overseas for this short period of time and I desperately wanted to just get back to my life I was having such a ball over there you know mm. like um such good friends I was living at the time I was um going out with an English guy and so I had all his friends there and um, you know I knew I wanted to travel and this unfortunate accident just put a stop to all of that so I just wanted to get back and I knew that I you know my two years was going to be wrapping up and I really wanted to to make the most of that time.
0: Um, Can you tell us why you chose to you know speak to the physios and say I need you to push me along? Why why did you make that choice?
1: Um, Yeah well like I'd mentioned, I was really keen to get back to my life. I had a short period of time um, in the UK. And um, I look, I don't know at the very early days, I don't know whether it was someone suggested it to me or if I'd come up with it myself. But I remember considering this choice, you know, sitting here thinking, okay, so is going to be a long recovery. I can either think, you know, why, why did this happen to me and go down a slippery slope of wallowing in my own self-pity or I could choose to um, see this as a, you know, it happened, sure, but um, I'm going to be in charge of getting myself back up in my feet. So this was a like an important choice, and I, I think I probably made that um, because it was, you know, I was super lucky. This, these, like you mentioned, ten people died on this, um, on this, in this accident, and um, it was a bit of a sliding doors moment. I remember getting into the the carriage with my my ticket was booked onto and looking around going, oh, you know, this is 5.45 in the morning. I really didn't want to be sitting with many people. Mm. But I remember looking around going, there's, oh, there's a lot of few people here. I'll just go and see what the next carriage looks like. And so I did um, and ended up sitting um, with hardly any people in a carriage, but the carriage I was supposed to be on, um, I think six or seven of the 10 fatalities actually occurred in that carriage. And it was, it was sort of, Awful too, because the man behind me um, in the carriage that I did end up sitting in had um, had died in the accident. So I was I sort of considered this yeah, this is really crap. But I'm really really lucky. I'm lucky to be alive. I'm lucky I was you know by myself. I didn't have to concern myself about anybody else or worry about anybody else. I knew what I was made of. Like I think that once I've real- once I'd realised what the path on physio would be like um, and what the rehab would be like and that I shouldn't really have any permanent long-term ongoing injuries, then I would be, you know, I'd be okay. And so um, I effectively wanted a really great recovery and I wanted to do that as, as soon as I could. So I made that choice um, to be really active in my recovery and I really wanted the physios to, to push me so I could get the, get to going back to my life as soon as I could.
0: And so you, you were able to get back to, to travelling and back to your working holiday.
1: Yeah, I, absolutely. My um, uh, I had moved back after hospital to um, my boyfriend at the time, his parents' place, and they were wonderful. They'd put me up. They'd really bent over backwards to accommodate me. Um, but at that stage, I um, was still walking with crutches um, and then a like one stick, um, but my my parents um came back to visit so we had we had planned originally that i we were going to meet in austria and go to slovenia with my folks i had missed out on that and they'd missed out on it because of the accident so they they came over and they surprised me um and we went with my i still had Actually, I'd lost the X-Fix by that stage, but I'd had my stick, so I still had a stick that was, I was hobbling around in, and we went and drove all around Scotland right up to the very, very top, and it was a wonderful holiday. Um, it was, you know, great to be able to get out from the walls that I had been in. Um, yeah, and what did, a
0: what a lovely surprise, yeah. like, just to have them appear. It was beautiful. Yeah, it was yeah. lovely, yeah. And so were you, were you able to sort of get, get out and about and see a little bit of scenery? like, Or were you confined to tea rooms?
1: Uh, it, when we were travelling?
0: yes um we
1: were I couldn't um my dad tells the story oh look I I tried to get out everywhere I could but often they'd say stay in the car and look (laughs) look from the car you know these rickety old um castles and um falling down ruins that they were all seeing I would go to the edge and and look and then I was just and I remember my dad and it now when he tells the story he's just like I cannot believe what I saw like you know there was a some car, ruiny castle thing and they had told me to stay at the gate and have a look from there and then um and he turned around about 15 minutes later and I had my stick and hobbling and I was clambering the wall <laughs> trying to get up to have a look at what they were looking at and he's just like what are you doing you're in a ruin and you're not stable yourself so <laughs> so I could I could start to do a bit more of that and that taste of freedom was just it just spurred me on
0: what an achievement! That's yeah. fantastic. Yeah, you, you're super motivated, of course, and so I guess um, just just thinking about the travel part. So you're back yeah. in you're back in a vehicle, you're, you're driving around. How was that for you?
1: Well, I th- thought it would be okay, and it's probably the it's this sort of uh, like a psychological thing that started to rear its head a little bit um, because I wasn't in control of the vehicle. Obviously, uh, hadn't been in control of the the train I was in, hmm. um, I started to um, – this is where I said it was a bit emerging that I was going to have um, some control issues about being in transport um, and not being um, not being the, the steerer of it or the driver of it. So I, I just – um, you know, that started to, it, in Scotland, it started to become a bit apparent. You know, I'd be um, really concerned. I was catastrophizing a lot. You know, my dad would make a, a very sensible type of decision on the roads and I would think that the worst was going to happen and um, just, you know, getting a little bit overwrought and it was very stressful being a passenger in a car. Um, and that sort of had a bit of a theme, um, you know, years later, well, about three or four years later, I'd made it home to... Um, Uh, to Australia and I'd gone and organised a trip with my sister we were going to Vietnam um, and I remember we had to do a overnight train from Hanoi to Sapa up in the hills and I did not get one wink of sleep at all that whole time like I was you know this train's going to fall off the rails we're going to have an accident Um, I couldn't I just it was totally irrational my poor sister had to sit up with me the whole night so we were exhausted by the time we got there Um, And then it became a bit of an issue and started to impact on work um, because I remember being in a... um an aeroplane going, just a little aeroplane, but an aeroplane going to Tamworth for work. And it was, you know, very windy and bad weather. Mm. And I just um, was not coping. I was crying. I was holding on to the lady beside me. I just thought we were definitely going to die. It was, I was, again, catastrophizing. I couldn't cope with the fact that I wasn't in control of the vehicle and this vehicle was all over the place. And clearly something dreadful was obviously going to happen in my, that's what I thought in my mind.
0: And so this was years on. This was years on from the accident, yeah. yeah. So this is
1: a, a few years on and it's you know I think cuz I had focused so much um on my physical recovery and I was going to get back to living my life the way I wanted to I sort of hadn't really um I didn't feel that I needed or was ready for any sort of psychological healing I thought you know I've I've got this I've you know I'm pretty strong I can manage this all on my own and um and then these <laughs> these cracks started to appear about um, you know, effectively control issues. I turned into a, a um, transport control freak and a catastrophizer.
0: Do you think these just came out of nowhere? I mean, did you have warnings that this this was going to happen to you? Were there any uh, sort of uh, signs that you were you were panicking even in the early stages and your flight back to Sydney?
1: Ah, uh, my trip back to Sydney. Um, I think I was I was with maybe this is the ticket. I was with um three other girls from england and we stopped off in singapore and as as much as i didn't like the flight i um i was you know not i was okay but we'd also been drinking wine and we were relaxed but as soon as i'm so was sober um on a trip that's when i was very aware that i really didn't enjoy i just really tried to avoid travel
0: so, so right so what so what have you done about that have you done anything to sort of address this
1: yeah, I think um, the the pivotal um, episode that that changed um, the direction of my um, my recovery for my you know my psychological scarring with transport and things like that occurred on that flight to Tamworth. And I was sitting next to a woman. Um, and she could see how distressed I was and I was you know holding her hand and I was blubbering and swearing and it was just uh, it was just a horrible trip and she said you know I think because I she said what you know we had a chat I'd explained to her what the problem was and she just said quietly gave me the number of a gentleman in um at Westmead and um she said you know I think that you probably should try some hypnotherapy and I, I look that wasn't really on my radar I didn't you know having done allied health it really wasn't I didn't know much about it it wasn't something that i necessarily believed would work Yeah, but I was you, pretty...
0: mm, you don't strike me as someone who'd uh, take advice from a stranger
1: <laughs> <laughs> but uh, i think i was pretty desperate and um getting on a plane um, for work was becoming a real issue. So I was, I was keen to do something about it. Anyway, I went and saw this guy for about five or six sessions and, you know, he just, he validated my reactions and my need for control. And he um, very carefully explained about what hypnotherapy actually is and how it works. And it was all very sensible and scientific as far as I was concerned. And so I, I, I you know, bought into the process and, and that has helped I, as much as I don't like really getting on a plane and I don't like getting on a train I'll do it and I don't need to you know take a valium or take um you know half a bottle of wine to get on there I'm already okay to to go and do those um those trips so it sort of it helped me get past that issue that was limiting me in my life moving forward
0: yeah right wow well fortunate hey that you're sitting next to um yeah the, the wise passenger Otherwise... Another sliding
1: doors moment, yeah. <laughs> yeah,
0: that's right. Uh, Lisa, you mentioned to me when we were talking about this um, this episode that you'd done some reading as well, and that that some reading had, had sort of helped you along the way.
1: Yeah, um, early early on, a friend of mine, um, actually, her parents had sent me a. Um, a book which made a big difference. Um, it was a story about um, I think the ladies know it's a biography about Janine Shepard I think her name is and she's a she was a Olympic cross country skier I think and she'd had a dreadful accident while um, while she was training this is many years ago and um, it was the story about her recovery and she was much more brutally banged up than I ever was but um, she just um, was so determined and so fixated on, um, you know, getting her life back and and being able to, you know, she said, "If I can't walk again, I'll fly." And she ended up getting her, um, her uh, 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 um, license, her air, what do you call it, a pilot's license, um, and a commercial pilot's license and an acrobatic pilot's license. And she just was so determined. And I think that book early on really solidified or just you know just said okay you can you can do this too you can obviously not as badly affected as she is but you can do this too and i saw her years later and she she'd come as a guest speaker to one of the work events we'd had and i was just oh, i was astounded to see her and obviously she'd made a big <laughs> impact i remember going up to speak to her at the end and i <laughs> the look on her face, because what was coming out of my mouth was this blubbering gibberish. She said, "You've changed my life, and you were so inspirational." I didn't even explain how she had. I just unloaded. I was like, "Can I have a hug?" This poor woman had just, you know,
0: you just met your hero.
1: Oh, absolutely. So, she, um, that book was incredible. So, having um a story to to liken my my journey with was important. And um, I was just, I don't know whether. You know, it's interesting for your listeners to hear, but um, that I'd spoken to a friend. I was such a good friend of mine who'd spent, there were there were a couple of girls who spent, they were in London at the time and they came up every weekend. Um, one of them would come up every weekend and spend time with me. Um, so I never felt isolated. Um, and I was chatting to one of them during the week saying, do you remember, do you remember this is 20 years ago, blah, blah. And she says, how can I forget? But she did say um she was astounded by a clarity of thought i had at that time and she'd said could you want me to get you some music to listen to and um and i had said um at that point, very early in the days of my recovery, no, I don't I don't want to listen to any music because I don't want to have a soundtrack um, that is associated with this episode. And I don't want to be 20 years down the track in a shopping centre and hear a song and then just be, you know, crippled with the horrible feeling of the, 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 the time that I'm in right now. So I, I was, um, it's an interesting point, isn't it? I That's so I interesting. To... You're yeah. so
0: aware of... of... Yeah. Of of the impact that music could have had on you yeah. d- so, down the track. Uh, wow. That's right. I
1: didn't want to ruin any songs basically.
0: <laughs> oh, I'm sure there's a good explanation as to why why that, that is. Yeah. But um yeah. yeah, wow. I'd not heard that before. But obviously you associate um music with enjoyment, right? And yeah, you were well, going through it. a period of time that wasn't wasn't enjoyable whatsoever. No. no. So um Lisa, it's been uh it's been amazing just listening to your story. I I've known you for such a long time, and I just feel as though <laughs> there's so much information here that I you know I wasn't aware of about you. I know this hasn't been easy for you to tell your story today, and um, I just think it's just been yeah uh, you know, it's been so valuable for um for our listeners to to hear your story, and uh, hopefully others will will learn from what you've told us today as well. Um, it's so wonderful to see you out running. I spot you out um, running in some of our local parks from time to time and doing sprints and intervals. And I've seen you out walking for years as well. You're leading an active life and, and you're thriving in your career. And um, you've got a, a wonderful family. And like I said, you, you, you're the uh, life of the party. Um, so thank you so much for your time this afternoon. And um, we really appreciate uh, what you've done for us today. Thank you. Oh.
1: Thanks, Chris. It was my pleasure. Thank you very much.
0: You're welcome. Cheers, Lisa.
1: See you later.